Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, I'm joined by Alan Vasquez, and this is a show about the iconic screenplays of the 21st century. We're once again on the 21st episode of our series, so this episode is a retrospective that I like to call the 21st Recap. You might have overlooked an episode, you might not have listened to any of them yet at all, but by listening to this special episode, we really hope it helps you navigate our program and find out about all of the story discussions we have had and the guests that have been featured on the show that might really interest you. And for us, it's a great opportunity to look back on the past series and evaluate what we have learned from all of these fantastic stories that we have read and watched and the conversations that we have had. This is something we did last year after our first 20 episodes as well. Yeah. It was really fun. So we're doing it again. And I realized that it hasn't even been a full year since we did that episode. Yeah, that's true. We release an episode every two weeks, so it would normally take 42 weeks. Mm. And thanks to the lockdown, we did speed up our release schedule a little bit recently. So it has been less than a year. The last recap was posted in September 2019. That's right. Okay, yeah. so we're going to start out with a quick update about how we're getting on in lockdown. Next, we're going to go through the recap and let you know about the last 20 episodes we have released and play you some clips from the featured guests. And then the final part of the show is dedicated to us selecting which of the screenplays would deserve the top awards yeah. if they were all in competition with each other. The awards section always makes for a great debate, so feel free to skip ahead to that part if you're a seasoned veteran of the show. I hope this is an insightful retrospective for you, the listener, and by listening to us talk about what we thought was notable, it helps you find some more episodes of the podcast that intrigue you. A lot has changed for both of us since the last time. At the time of recording, we are still locked down at home, practicing social distancing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. But let's take a stroll down memory lane. So, Alan, what are your key takeaways from this second series of episodes? I feel like um, it's kind of almost second nature to to read a script in the sense that um, I'm kind of more aware of what to look for or what it is that I'm kind of going to talk about. or So it's it's becoming a bit more efficient reading and the research has been quicker to do too because again we know what to look for now so yeah it's been it's been another great batch of 20 episodes i think for this batch we had a lot of guests that you had on the episodes that i was not on so uh, actually while i was looking at the list of the screenplays i was like oh actually i have less screenplays to choose from than last time but it was much harder to decide for the awards portion, which we'll get to. But I must say that this year, these past 20 episodes were much harder to pick. Yeah, we picked a very good selection. Yes. And there's there's very few that are not top quality, very high standard of writing and right. compelling plots, compelling storylines, brilliant characters, iconic moments, great dialogue. A lot of that is in most of these these screenplays we've looked at, so it's going to be tough to pick oh, which yeah. is our favorite, and it's probably going to be slightly down to a bit of personal opinion and just it really on is. a whim we decide for this one. Ultimately, because I did narrow it down for most of the categories, I narrowed it down to three, 
And from those three, it, it could easily be one of those. So yeah, anyways, we'll, we'll get to that when we cross that bridge. So just to begin with, let's think back to where we were 21 episodes ago. Mm-hmm. We were recording our first recap and things have changed a lot since then. But at the time, the idea was that we were going to do a few episodes together and then you were going to travel to Italy to work mm-hmm. on a film, mm-hmm. which you did do. And I was going to work with guests on the episodes in the meantime while you were working. I was going to record some some episodes and, and feature some different voices. And then I took my own trip in December to the United Kingdom and traveled around various parts of the UK doing the interviews that I did. And I took a small Zoom recorder and two podcast microphones and all of those recordings were done in person with the guest, which was brilliant. And then we came back and then everything changed very shortly afterwards. There were a few months at the start of the year where I think we both had visions for how we were expecting our careers to go and what we were going to be working on and writing. And everything just changed around March, of course, with the COVID-19 lockdown. Yeah. Uh, We had just interviewed David Rabinowitz for uh, Black Klansman, which we were both very excited about. I was really excited to, to talk to him and it felt like a bit of a milestone for us during that episode, you know, having the opportunity to actually talk to someone who has gone that far in the industry and gotten their screenplay out there to a lot of people and not just that, but a a really amazing screenplay at that. And then, yeah, all of a sudden things shifted and looking at the, you know, sort of the positive side of all of that for us as writers, it kind of gave us the opportunity to kind of catch up on some film watching and and do a little bit of uh, learning. I am really appreciating your Instagram post for that one account that you created. For those that don't know, uh, Will created a <laughs> secret account uh, that only his friends see, but he's constantly posting uh, these frames from older films. And uh, it's basically about cinematography and dissecting certain shots and how they pertain to story and mood and tone. And I think it's brilliant. Like every time I'm looking at that, it's, it's really great insight. So I'm really appreciating that. That's really fun. Yeah, and that was just because I wanted to have essentially a notebook. I am mm-hmm. I envision myself, okay, if I was in Scorsese's shoes or Coppola's shoes at this age, they would probably be sitting in a cinema watching a film on an old projector and taking notes on what they saw. But this is a completely different era. And I feel that with the ease of, compiling and keeping information in a single place why not have a visual diary where small clips can just be stored and then i can remember and take inspiration from that for for future scenes and yeah yeah that's coming really helpful no, um, it's brilliant. i'm thinking just in off the top of my head there's this scene where uh robin hood is from the 1938 version of the adventures of robin hood and robin hood and will scarlet are trying to escape out through the forest and there's this beautiful light just shining through the trees that the two horses gallop through and i'm using that image in my head as i'm writing a scene in my own screenplay right now thinking this is how i would envision the forest and the people chasing through it so yeah i think it's it's great to kind of keep notes of things that inspire you and refer back to that when you find yourself stuck in a screenplay 
and thinking what should happen next, it's not copying, it's taking inspiration from. It's saying, this is something that I think works really well. How can I utilize that same concept in a new way? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's great because when the writer's block hits, it takes inspiration to get out of it. It's not, it's nothing analytical. You know, it's uh, that'll keep you even more stuck when you're really trying to go about it that way. But yes, it's taking inspiration and then applying it to the context of the story that you're trying to tell. And then that's where it stops being about that particular film or that particular footage. And it becomes about what it's doing to the effect of your story. And then- I think it's a great idea for, for all writers to have some kind of diary of ideas and I know you carry around your notebooks with you when you when you're traveling about on uh, everywhere you know, really. when you're getting the trolley or something you, yeah, yeah. you've got it there to write something down if you don't have anywhere to take notes I feel like the the change that happened um, in a way kind of made us hone in on that part of the craft and and to I feel like just do a bit more research and look at the old masters of filmmaking and and learn as much as possible so i think for for me that's kind of how uh when it comes to filmmaking because obviously this pandemic has affected other areas of our livelihood but i'm not going to get into those personal details but when it comes to uh this particular thing uh for writing i think it's been a it's been a blessing in disguise Yes, and I had a certain rhythm, I had a certain way of working that was going well for me for the start of the year, and the lockdown initially disrupted things quite significantly, but the last six days in a row, I think I've done everything in terms of meeting my writing goals for six days in a row, and I think once you get that kind of momentum, you're fostering habits, you're building habits again, and what was originally strange such as trying to write at home as opposed to going out where I preferred to write. Now that that's normalized, I'm able to continue again. So, yeah, I I think it just took a bit of time, but eventually we all adapt. Yes. Yep. So, should we take a look back? Yeah, let's, let's start looking back. I believe the first film is Amelie. It is. So, we recorded an episode on the screenplay to Amelie back in September of last year. This was shortly before you were going to travel. And this was the first screenplay that I think either of us have ever read in French, which was a great challenge just in itself. Good for us. That's great. I think one of the things that was most interesting about Amelie was learning about the way that the two screenwriters wrote together. The fact that one Mm. writer, I think it's Guillaume Laurent, is the one who is assigned all of the duties of writing the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And Jean-Pierre Jonet, he prefers to write the scenes and the overall direction of the story, but he doesn't like to get involved in the details of the dialogue. So that's that's very interesting. It's an interesting way to break it down. And I think when you are a writing team and the two of you feel very strongly about having certain strengths and certain weaknesses, there's nothing wrong with being honest and upfront about that and and working in that fashion i think there's almost a perception that all writing duos would work in a similar way but based on this research into amelie and then of course talking to david rabinowitz who works with his writing partner charlie wachtel 
People work in completely different ways and it's just whatever works for you, just in the same way that an individual writer might have a personal preference. So it's the same when it's a writing duo. One of the things that I remember from the film is how little Amelie talks in the film. She doesn't have that much dialogue, but there's all these supporting characters, very colorful supporting characters surrounding her who are always talking. So she's almost like this kind of guardian angel of sorts. I don't know. She's just constantly watching these people in her daily life, and she's got opinions about each and every one of them. And each one, I think, brings a different side to her. So we're getting to know our protagonist through other people, mostly, because she doesn't really talk. And she doesn't narrate her own film. You know, we have someone else narrating the film. So it's not like we're even getting insight into her thoughts. So it's a very tricky kind of um, approach. But nonetheless, by the end of the film, we we know who she is. Yeah, I think it's one of those screenplays that reminds you of possibilities. There is so much of a tradition of writing screenplays in a very formulaic fashion, thinking that this is what works and this is what sells. And something like Amelie is just a breath of fresh air. It really mm -hmm. leans into a sense of wonder, a sense of imagination, and making the imaginary real, which creates this kind of surreal blend of both worlds, where there's a real world and the world of imagination, and they can intersect. And I think it just reminds you of a lot of the mystery and magic in life. A screenplay like that opens your mind to possibilities. Instead of thinking, oh, things have to always be done this way, Amelie reminds you that there's a million different ways you haven't tried it, and sometimes it can really work. Yeah, it's really. It kind of felt like a like a fairy tale, kind of like a fable. It had that sort of structure. It was definitely something very different in the way that it uses all these very uh, fantastical elements to tell what is essentially kind of a romantic comedy, which I really loved. Yes, it's constantly avoiding categorization and catching you off guard with original ideas and brilliantly quaint concepts and characters. And Amelie really exemplifies that. It, it really shows you how some of the best foreign cinema really can do things that you really don't see very often in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that kind of film would be done here. Yeah, it was a beautiful film. I loved it. The second episode we did after that was Lost in Translation, which we recorded shortly after I had returned from Japan. I took a trip to Japan in September. That's right. And that was really fun, just to kind of tie into something, even though there's plenty of great Japanese films, and hopefully we will be looking at Japanese films at some point on the podcast as well. Primarily, the idea of looking at Lost in Translation came about by us saying, well, we should try and focus on another female screenwriter. And we both agreed that Sofia Coppola is one of our personal favorites. For I think it's a very um, focused screenplay. It's only about 80 pages long. So it's very short. And yet within that, a very complex emotional map of two characters is completely conveyed. Ultimately, it's it's based around that first word in Lost in Translation, the, the fact that these characters feel lost, they feel disconnected from their normal reality, and they're both spending time in this country where it's very hard for them to 
connect and communicate with other people, then finding that mutual understanding between the two of them is very memorable and it's it's very brilliantly written. It almost felt like a meditation on the loneliness that these characters are experiencing and the connection they end up finding within each other. And this is one of the scripts, I think, that really has the theme at the foreground. You know, it's like this ever present thing in the film, which is like you're, you know, that these people are craving for a connection and that they're deeply lonely. But I think the foundation was the script in the sense that she wrote these two very specific characters. She wrote them specifically with that age gap as well, because she's tackling two very different types of loneliness in two different stages of life. And uh, yeah, I, I think she's really talented when it comes to character moments when, you know, she likes to let the scenes breathe. She likes to stay with them. And, and as a result, seemingly it looks like nothing's really happening. But by the end of it, you feel the whole weight of what was going on with these two characters. And then that's, that's really brilliant writing. Yeah, I think that's something that we explored in our episode. And if anyone's missed, this is what the the purpose of this recap is, is to kind of remind listeners of episodes they might have missed and encourage them to go back and find that episode and, and take the time to enjoy it. I think with Lost in Translation, one of the things to really look out for in our analysis is character development and minimalism. I think it's a very effective screenplay. It, it doesn't use anything that isn't completely necessary. And in a way, that's also inspired by the whole Japanese concept of minimalism. It gives you a lot without saying very much, which is mm -hmm. a very difficult task to do as a writer, I think. Yeah, all the character work definitely paid off. And as I'm talking about the film, that's making me want to change my, my winner's list. But anyways, let's, let's go on to the next. The New World, written and directed by Terrence Malick, came out in 2006. The biggest impression I had from the screenplay was that it kind of read like a book. It didn't really feel like a traditional script because he really loves his details. I think he feels like the whoever's going to read the script, that's his audience as well. And he really wants to put you, the reader, through the experience of what he sees this movie as about. And for that, I think that kind of stands out compared to a lot of the other scripts that we normally read. You can tell he's, he's got a very specific vision. He knows how to set tone. There is still that eye for these very intimate moments between characters. He's concerned about who they are, how do they respond to the external conflicts happening around them to reveal who they are as characters. I think that was my biggest takeaway from Terrence Malick is his care for the, the themes and the characters. And even though it's set hundreds of years ago, it felt kind of contemporary, kind of like an independent drama in the way that he approached the film in a more subtle and uh, a more spiritual way. Yeah, I, th I think the screenplay to The New World itself reads like an accompaniment. It gives you so much more than the film does in terms of dialogue and character background, which is often taken out. And Terence Malick, I think, is a very good example of the concept that a film is written three times during the, the writing and then the filming and then the editing. I think by the time 
the new world becomes a film it is very very different to the screenplay that he had written and within that screenplay is so much detail he lists so much more about the background of the characters there's all these additional scenes and it was interesting to see how he had actually written out entire scenes and then he was taking lines of dialogue from those scenes and overlaying them in quite a psychedelic way, quite a unusual way where it felt more dreamlike or like memories. And he would scatter that through different sequences, different montages on the screen. I think in the episode ourselves, we looked at a lot of the historical detail about the real events at the Jamestown colony about John Smith and Pocahontas. I think we provided a lot of good information about that. But ultimately, it was a very good experience to read that screenplay and just see how much it transformed as a film. Yeah, it's very interesting. It kind of almost reminds me of something that Tarantino constantly talks about when he talks about shooting his scripts. And Terrence Malick, um, in case you guys don't know, he's he's a bit of a... Uh, a recluse he doesn't really do interviews or doesn't really like the spotlight like that but i would imagine he's probably like tarantino in the sense that he says that every time he goes on set tarantino says that he thinks about how can i adapt my novel onto the set today so it's almost like you write all this wealth of story and character and dialogue and ideas and then while you're on set it's almost like taking extracting the most crucial parts of the script and i think that's it's beautiful what he does with with his stories i think he no one quite does it like him i think he has a, a knack for hitting that sweet spot of spirituality without kind of beating you over the head or it doesn't feel phony and i think part of the mm-hmm. reason why it doesn't feel phony or cheesy or anything anything like that is because he's got a very uh, solid script in hand and he knows who these characters are and it's all in the service of telling that story and not necessarily trying to make you cry or anything it's more about understanding who these people are okay so following that i recorded an episode on the very controversial academy award winner crash which was written by paul haggis and Epsi Letumbe was the guest for that episode who is an independent writer and TV series creator based here in San Diego. And I'm going to play you a clip from that episode. Cool. Where Epsi has had an interesting upbringing because she grew up partly in Africa before moving to the United States. She has an interesting insight into, into African-American culture and also sees it slightly as an insider and slightly as an outsider because she did grow up previously outside of it. In this clip, she talks about inside conversations. One of the criticisms leveraged against Crash at the time that it came out was that it was a lazy film. It was intended only to provoke or it it simplified things and and stuff like that. And in this clip, Epsi offers a bit of a alternative view and response to those kind of criticisms of the film being lazy because she thinks that actually these inside conversations show that Paul Haggis took a lot of care in writing this screenplay. Then that brings us to what he was trying to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. He set out to make a movie that would make people uncomfortable. 
And he succeeded in doing that. It made people very uncomfortable. And considering Ta-Nehisi Coates' criticism of the film, I agree with his criticism when it comes to when you look at the film as how realistic is this? Mm -hmm. It's not the most realistic. It does come across it like it has an agenda, which, you know, going by what you pointed out with where he wanted to bust liberals, clearly it, it did. But this almost seems like an inside conversation. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, I think a lot of voices that feel unheard or feel silenced are almost outsider voices where it's a minority trying to speak to a majority. But when you have someone who is in the majority speaking to other people within the majority, the tone has to change. The The way that you speak to people has to change because you're speaking to people you know very well. Mm-hmm. And I almost want to argue that the reason Ta-Nehisi Coates felt the way that he did, I, I can't speak about his feelings, but based on his criticism, some of which I agree with, the reason that is there at all is because that film was not made for Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates and many people in the minority who face a lot of these issues on a day-to-day basis already know so many of these things. Mm -hmm. Paul Haggis is introducing certain ways of thinking to people who feel comfortable, to people who feel like, oh, this is in the past, to people who feel like we've come so far and there are certain things we no longer have to worry about. And he was trying to bring them to reality because they were living in a place that was a bubble. And Mm -hmm. I think that when you come to today, 2019, he was right. That's a very interesting point. Uh, yeah, uh, I think I think this episode is really worth, if, if anyone hasn't heard it, it's really worth going back to, to listen to because we really got in depth with what Crash was about, reconsidering it a good 15 years after it won that Academy Award, which I think in that episode I argued as well that if it hadn't won the Academy Award, perhaps the criticisms of the film wouldn't have been so strong. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. once you get recognized at that level, saying this is the best picture of the year, that of course you're opening yourself up to a wealth of criticism because film is a battleground for ideas and culture and, and all of these different things. And so, yes, I highly recommend this episode to anyone who's interested in hearing differing perspectives on Crash from two people from different backgrounds kind of talking about it and and what the film is about. Uh, the big takeaway f- from me for that film was that it really works when you see it as a parable or as a fable, mm. which is the way mm. it was written. But if you try and see it as a reflection of reality, it doesn't exactly work. And that's why I think it upset a lot of people. But when it's considered as a fable, I think it's a little bit different. I assume you have seen Crash. and I have. I've always been on the fence about that film. Because when it first came out, I, I really liked it, but it was not Best Picture for me. So I was definitely one of those people that was a bit taken back as, why why did this film get Best Picture? It also beat Brokeback Mountain that year. Which I loved. I thought that movie was brilliant. I th- I, so I think there was a bit of a resentment towards the film for a few years. And then I saw it again. And the thing about it is, is that it... It has all these very powerful moments, 
and it didn't give you time to breathe and to really get some sort of nuances or get some sort of subtlety within the characters. It was just every scene was big. Every scene had something important to say. It really felt like the longest PSA on earth. It just had that sort of, okay, like it's, it's every scene trying to like shove an agenda down my throat. You know, it kind of felt like that. But I think what makes it work, um, I'd never considered it it as a fable and now that you mentioned that if it seemed that way and then you go in thinking about it that way yeah i can see how that works i didn't know that was his intention because of the way it's shot it felt very gritty and it feels like it's supposed to feel realistic and yes we're in 2020 now and it's uh it, it feels like a relevant film like i just recently saw it like a couple months ago and it felt like this is a movie that could come out this year and it wouldn't feel dated at all it would feel like this is a a movie for our times and it's unfortunate that that is still a conversation that we have to have that we're having but as a piece of good screenwriting I, i don't think it's really good i don't think that there was any nuances or subtleties or anything really dynamic between any of the characters because it was so concerned with the point it was trying to make I think it's uh I think it's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I highly recommend to anyone who is now remembering Crash, a, a film which is often very far at the back of our minds and wants to get in deeper with some of the topics it raised. The episode I recorded with Epsi is over 2 hours because there are so many characters and themes and topics to discuss. But I do think she was a, a brilliant guest to have on the show because she offered a very interesting perspective. Uh, following that episode, Tommy Savoya from the Cube Command podcast came on to discuss the first of Peter Jackson's second trilogy, mm. The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. And one of the insights that Tommy brought into that episode was regarding the adaptation of the book for the screen. So we'll listen to that clip now. I I think in terms of translation to the movies that Peter Jackson was responsible for, he had to put more effort into not just visually, but in terms of dialogue, fleshing out a lot of the parts that Tolkien chose not to, but could not be translated to film the same way that Tolkien wrote it down on paper. Prime example, I suppose, would be the dwarves. Because in my experience with the book, The dwarves themselves did not stand out as much. Not even Thorin felt as big to the first half of the book as he is in An Unexpected Journey. The dwarves themselves were given their own, well, of course, they had their uh, an actor playing each character, but they all had their own dialogue that was added to the film and their own mannerisms, their own way of talking, their own different clothes and swords that they used. And Peter Jackson had to put a lot more effort into just fleshing out the 13 dwarves than Tolkien initially thought was important at the time. It it was very fun. I do eventually hope on the 21st rewrite to get through all of the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films. I would love to. That's something that I think could take years, but I think if we had a very good guest to offer a different perspective on each of the installments, it would keep it very fresh. It would turn it into a real conversation because we could have six different perspectives, one on each of the films. And I think that the ideas that Tommy was raising in that clip are really worth thinking about when you're adapting 
something that is essentially it's a very thin novel, The Hobbit. Yep. It's it's a few hundred pages. It's not as long as any of the individual Lord of the Rings books in itself, and they tried to turn it into three whole films. I think the initial idea was that it was going to be two, and some of the problems in The Hobbit trilogy compared to the Lord of the Rings trilogy primarily come from that. It comes from a lack of source material to work with, trying to extend the story out so much more than what it initially was. But I do enjoy the first film, particularly because I do think that that film, compared to the other ones, captured the spirit of the book a bit better. The hero's journey part of it is really fascinating, worth looking at again, and we discuss this in in that episode as well. It's everything you would expect from a hero's journey. It's this guy who doesn't want to go on an adventure. He wants to stay safe at home in his hobbit hole. And of course, he's whisked along on this adventure by Gandalf and the dwarves and learns what he's really made of. I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I was very excited when they announced that The Hobbit was going to be made into a film and I was even more excited. I was excited when Guillermo del Toro was attached to the film because he was attached to the film for a little bit and then Peter Jackson came back and and directed it. I couldn't help but feel like maybe they had gotten a little greedy with adding another film because I I, I do remember it was supposed to be just a two-parter at one point and then they extended it to three and I just thought it's a thin book why would they extend it to a third? It smelled like a business decision as opposed to a creative decision that that's just my sort of well the one thing you you can't argue with is the amount of money they made on each of those exactly so and they it was all shot at once so they didn't have to go and set up another movie so they had nothing really at uh, at stake by releasing a third one and everything to gain from it i loved bilbo baggins as a character you know I, i did read the book when i was younger and watching the film, I think uh, it felt like Bilbo Baggins. You know, I thought they did a really good job with the character. And I thought they took really great care with the other dwarves. I think that was really good. I think it was a nice touch that every dwarf had their personality. And, you know, you kind of had to because when you have so many characters on screen, you need something identifiable for each one. So nothing gets lost in the mix there. It got disappointing as it went along. It didn't feel like a, a, as cohesive as the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it didn't feel like it had this rhythm that the original films had. And I know this is going to sound very superficial and nothing to do with screenwriting, but the thing that bugged me the most was how much CG was in the film. It felt like a video game. And it's just, it, it lacked the sort of magic that the original three had. They, they had miniatures built for those films and it, it just gave it a different sort of more realistic and more epic feel to and this it would it was doing impossible camera shots where it clearly is all very it's all digital and it, and it kind of loses a bit of the human touch it just didn't feel like the old lord of the rings to me well hopefully we'll get a chance to explore the other films in the future but in the meantime anyone who loves the lord of the rings trilogy or the hobbit trilogy they can go back and listen to that episode Uh, So let's talk about Gladiator next, which was an episode we recorded all together with Stuart Voitella, who is a lecturer at San Diego State University. He has written a book called Myth and the Movies. It's kind of like the 21st rewrite, and that's why I 
reached out to him because he had been doing this in the 90s before podcasting existed. He had essentially written a book taking all these various examples of films and trying to show how the hero's journey model, uh, as developed by Christopher Vogler, who he knew personally, how that would apply to all these different varieties of films, from war films to romance to psychological thrillers. He was taking a diverse array of genres and trying to show the universality of myth in screenwriting. He offered some brilliant insights into the structure underlying Gladiator. And even though some people may be more in favor of the hero's journey model, some people might prefer to not use that in their own writing. I do think it's a very interesting lens to look at those films in particular when you discuss them with that lens. It really illuminates some of the stuff that's at work there, mentor characters, villains and and heroes and all of those things. Yeah, I think Gladiator is one of those movies that are it's like a fine wine for me. I think it it every time I watch it I, I find myself loving it more and more. I think uh it kind of made me see all the the little gems that I didn't quite see before. And I do remember by talking about it on this particular episode, you know, the three of us kind of finding this, you know, different insight. For example, I remember I realized that the one that really goes through the hero's journey or the one that goes through more of an arc is Joaquin Phoenix's character, Commodus. That was a very different insight than I had before. So it was, yeah, I, I, I love the film and I think it's one of my favorites now too. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed recording that episode. I'm so glad that we managed to do it. I think that essentially there's three different versions out there. There's the filmed version, the second draft and the first draft, and they have completely different endings, very different storylines most of the way through as well. So it was very interesting as a a good example of a story developing over a very long period of time, having different writers get involved. And obviously the result is a classic. Following that, we looked at The Lighthouse, written by Robert and Max Eggers, one of the best screenplays I think I've ever read, and a brilliant film, filmed entirely in black and white. Do you want to begin with your thoughts on The Lighthouse? Yes, and I was just going to add with... um lenses from the 1920s to give it an even more authentic uh, look to the story. I, I, I agree with you. I love this movie. I, I think it's one of the best scripts I've ever read as well. It feels like it's a completely new genre in a way. You know, it has this very kind of fable structure, yet it, it's it's a thriller, yet it's a bit of a drama. It's a character study. It's got all these different components and it's horror. I could not stop reading the script. I love everything about it. It's definitely like one of the best for sure. I very rarely go to the cinema to see a film twice in its theatrical run. So Mm. The Lighthouse is one of those rare examples that I did go to see it twice. Obviously, the fact we were going to be recording an episode on it helped me go the second time. It's brilliantly dense with mythological motifs with concepts from various sources that having also seen the witch which was their first film which had a huge impact on me when i saw that because of the way that it's written it's written entirely in authentic english from the time period when it's set full of suspense 
full of interesting character dynamics within one family. And one of the things that constantly keeps reoccurring to me as we're doing the 21st rewrite is that films based just around two characters are often the most compelling as screenplays because you've got this implicit tension going on all the time. If you've got those two characters vying for victory between the two of them, that does create very powerful tension on screen. Whiplash would be another example of that. Mm -hmm. And one of the big takeaways from something like The Lighthouse or Whiplash is that early on in a writing career, when you don't necessarily have access to the big budgets and the wider range of locations that you might need for certain other films, keeping things set in and grounded in one place and based around the tension between two characters can be very, very compelling and far cheaper and easier to make. So I think going back to the episode on The Lighthouse and listening to that will really help collect thoughts based around that movie. The, the problem with The Lighthouse is that it it's a little bit of a mystery to people and sometimes people want answers. But I think what actually is most powerful about The Lighthouse is that you don't really get the answers and that's okay. It's okay to have a film that simply gets your imagination going, but it doesn't tell you everything you needed to know about what exactly you experienced. You're able to make up a bit of your own mind about the experience you just had. It's a, it's a really great film and a really great screenplay. Yeah, it's uh, one of those films that uh, triggers conversations with whoever you go watch it with. And to me, that's always the best kind of film to watch because it makes you feel like you're participating and adding to the puzzle because it's not necessarily spelled out for you. So you kind of have to do a bit of the brain work. And I think that's definitely the case for this film. You mentioned the uh, mythological motifs and all of that stuff. I think they did such a brilliant job with that as well to embed it into not just the story, but how what it means to the characters. Again, this is, even though it's, it's a very stylized uh, story and film, it's still at its center. It's, it's about the, who these two guys are. I'm very interested to see how Robert Eggers' career develops from this point on. His current film or upcoming film, The North Man, is planned to be filmed this year. It's meant to be a Viking revenge film. So that already sounds incredible. Knowing the ability of this director and how he is as a writer, I can't wait to see that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I did watch The Witch, um, which I thought was also brilliant. Great. So following that, that was about the start of December. Uh, that was when I traveled over to the UK. And the first episode I recorded there was uh, in the city of York at uh, York St. John University. I met up with Robert Edgar, who is not Robert Eggers, but he's a lecturer on creative writing and, and he co-wrote a book called Adaptation for Screenwriters. So I spoke to him about No Country for Old Men, written by Joel and Ethan Cohen and adapted from the book by Cormac McCarthy. It's a very beloved film. For many people, I think it's their favorite Cohen Brothers film. It's the one that won the Academy Award for Best Picture and for Best Screenplay. One of the things that we talked about, because, of course, Rob had written a book on adaptation, was, of course, about what adaptation is and how is it done and what does it really mean. 
So the next clip I'm going to play for you is Robert Edgar talking about adaptation. I think one of the issues that you've identified quite rightly is this idea of being and seeing inside someone's head, understanding a rationale for what they do, that that either first-person or third-person narration that we get in novels, which is impossible to replicate in a in a film even with those moments of voiceover that we do get in some films and we get at the start of of no country for old men it's not consistent so the rationale for why people do things is is always elusive it's always inferred i think that's why some adaptations people feel very strongly about because that that's the aspect we we lose and that's perhaps the aspect that they they want one example again, which we always provoke strong reactions uh, in in teaching about the about adaptation, is enduring love, and people watch either reading the novel or watching the film independently think either one's a great thing. Uh, generalising here, but that's te- that tends to be the position. When you look at it in terms of adaptation, people are, are often quite hankered by the film. I think it's a great film, but th- they think the two don't work together. And it, I think a lot of that is to do with that that internal understanding the mindset of the main characters and why they're doing what they're doing. What's really interesting about No Country for Old Men, of course, is that we, as we've said perhaps a little already, we don't understand why these characters are doing what they're doing. Cormac McCarthy is elusive. That's one of the things he doesn't give us. And one of the reasons why the book is so challenging. We get some of it from the sheriff, but he's talking very generally. He's talking out there. It's not the internal workings of his mind. It's not a third person narrator telling us what he's thinking. It's more distant than that. It's more complicated than that. It forces the reader to work a lot more, but it might be one of the reasons why it makes for a very, very good adaptation because we were never going to get that with the film anyway. Yeah, so that was one of the things we discussed was about what is a good adaptation, what is a bad one, and why do audiences say, well, I preferred the book and I preferred the film. It does seem to be partly about understanding character motivation and how do you convey that in a screenplay. Well, I do. uh, Something just occurred to me. I feel the most successful adaptations, the writers really know what format they're working with script is purely visual and you're never going to get everything from a book onto a screenplay so it it always feels like in the spirit of is usually the most successful when you're able to kind of extract kind of the essence of what the book is trying to say and then use that as a sort of blueprint for for the screen version i see no country for old men i do love that film i haven't read the book so I don't know what the comparisons are there, but uh, you're right. I, I, what he was saying about the characters, you never really understand why Sugar does what he does at the end. He never bothers trying to explain what the hell is really happening within him. Uh, but you feel it, though. You feel that essence on screen. At least I did. You feel this, this, um, this thing that you're not quite seeing develop on screen, but you feel because of just uh, the sort of tone that the film had. And I think that's another way of maybe conveying the information that's in the books that you can't necessarily shoot, but you can portray by the way you edit or by the way you just set up that tone. Was it faithful to the book? I'm just curious now. Yes, and one of the interesting things about No Country for Old Men is that Cormac McCarthy started it as a screenplay and Mm. then turned it into a novel which I think definitely helped it in terms of being readapted for the screen. 
there is something very cinematic about the book in the first place. It's the fourth of his novels, which I've read. It's a very good book. Um, some of his other books are much more intense and much more visceral experiences. Blood Meridian and The Road in particular really, really absorb you and terrify you in equal measure. Hmm. No Country for Old Men is a very good story. It's a very good book. And uh, yeah, in that episode, we do a lot of comparisons between the version of the events in the book and the version that is in the screenplay. So I highly recommend this episode to anyone who is interested in those concepts and they're working on an adaptation themselves, perhaps, and they want to think about other other ideas, Just not just about conveying the exact same plot points on screen, but how do you convey character motivations and things like that. Following that episode, I it was actually the same day that I recorded the next episode at York St. John University with Mark Herman, who is a British writer and director. And he adapted in 2007, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which was a, originally a book written by John Boyne, an Irish writer. And it's a perspective on the Holocaust from the point of view of a German child. In that episode, I was able to interview him. I'd I'd read the book. I had watched the film and read the screenplay. And I was able to ask him a lot about his process, about decisions he made along the way, how he went about adapting it, why he changed the things that he chose to change. So it was a second part, I suppose, to the episode that had preceded it, where I'd been talking about adaptation because this was one where I could get really in-depth asking someone who had adapted a book mm. for the screen exactly how they went about doing it. So let's just hear very quickly from Mark Herman. But you have to know enough, you have to know enough about the history of it to, to really understand the book. And you know, it, that, to me, was a slight confusion when I was reading it and thinking about turning it into a film. With the film, I wanted it, from the, from the word go, I wanted it to be a, a family film in the true sense of family film where a family go to see a film and they talk about it for hopefully weeks afterwards and i think that, again that's what happened i think um that can we say kids i don't know yeah pre-teen or you know young teens want, want to see this film and the parents go with them and and it just opens up discussion which might not have happened otherwise I basically wanted, you know, I, need, I wanted a kid to get, a, any kid to get emotionally involved in a story because it doesn't bear scrutiny, the story. But if a, if kids can get emotionally involved, they then want to ask more questions. And if one kid did that, then that, that was made the film worth making. I'm, I'm sure more than one did, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but then, yeah, that did happen. Cause I talked, talked to uh, a lovely old woman uh, who uh, used to take schools to Auschwitz, like you say, and, and she felt that the process now taking school trips to Auschwitz felt very much like a museum now and that that, that emotional involvement didn't happen as much as you know kids watching a drama it can spur the interest perhaps more mm. wow it was very interesting to be able to talk to him about that because uh, one of the main criticisms of the boy in the striped pajamas is that it's not true to life and that when you're dealing with topics such as the Holocaust, there's such an importance to not be conveying fake or false information, to be honest about what really happened. There is, there's a huge historical responsibility there. And so when I went into that interview, I 
really intended to get to the heart of that. And, you know, I didn't want to be harsh in the interview, but I did want to ask difficult questions. I wanted to to really get to grips with, well, this is the this is the way that audiences have responded to this. This is these are the criticisms that they've raised. And how do you how do you feel about that? And his answer just caught me completely off guard because it was so articulate and so right. I think his heart was in the right place in making the film. And with that sense of this will spur someone's interest. And I think we talked about this maybe a little bit with Gladiator as well. Just the the sense of history. Yes, the events of Gladiator didn't really happen, but I think Gladiator as a film is responsible for many people going on, you know, as they've grown up and years later they've chosen what subject am I going to do at university? And they've chosen history or Roman history specifically because they loved that film and it it just engaged them right. when they were young. And so some, a film like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, even if it's not entirely authentic to what really happened, if it did capture the imagination of some young people and it got them interested in the topic, then they went on and learned about all of the facts and the figures and all of the real events. Right. And so I think I think that is a very interesting view on the role of adaptation and the responsibility of the filmmaker and the full episode is there for anyone to listen to if they want to get more in depth with exactly what Mark Herman did in his process. So I met with Brian Dunnigan, who used to be the head of the London Film School. He ran their screenwriting program for a couple of decades. He's a very, very experienced teacher and he wrote a book called Screenwriting is Filmmaking, which is in my opinion, the best book on screenwriting I've ever read. Oh, wow. So it was great to talk to him. Uh, Brian That's is awesome. from Edinburgh, so you're going to hear a very strong Scottish accent. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. Uh, we were talking about the film The White Ribbon by Michael Haneke, but at the end we discussed some of his advice for young screenwriters or emerging screenwriters, and he basically condensed a, a few of the great ideas that he has in his book. And if you go back to that episode, you can find a link to where you can purchase his book and also hear from him. Cool. Immediately in relation to the to structure, uh, you know, of course, most professional writers will plan their work, but not everyone. And some will plan in different ways and not every time. You know, some uh, may just begin with an image and an idea and work forwards and backwards and find the structure that way. Most, though, will work with character and also write outside of any possible structure that you might have in mind. So, um, you know, spend some time with your character at school or, uh, you know, down the pub or, you know, in, in some scenes where, you know, you are not planning to have in the script, but that mm -hmm. way, you know, finding out who your characters are and, and allowing the characters to determine where you're going. Uh, you, you, you know, you yourself, and this gets back to some of the conversation we've had, if you're over-determined, you know, if you're over-structured, if you bear down like a, an authoritarian father on your child, your creative self, they're not going to flourish. They're going to violently blow back on you. So I think the chapter, particularly on creativity, is precisely about ways in which you can uh, liberate, you know, your creative self 
define out what it is you want to write without feeling you have to keep confining it into some standard structure. We're all aware of basic structures like beginnings, middles and ends, and we're kind of working to that in the back. You know, By all means, when you look at that sprawling first draft, bring to bear the structural paradigms that you've read about in the screenwriting books and see what clue they can give you as to why it's a bit slow here and why it gets lost there and so on. But to try and pour your thoughts and yourself into a preset is, is not the way to get the most creative self to flourish in your work. Very wise words. I love the bit that he said about being a tyrant to yourself, to your you know creativity and your ideas. I think that's brilliant. I think I needed to hear that. And I think most writers tend to be that way. Yeah, so in, in this book, he, he has a whole chapter about that on just ways to get your creativity going again. It's certainly something that I think can get lost when we're working is we think, well, I need to do it. I need yep. to do it. And writing sometimes doesn't work that way. Sometimes actually taking a step back is writing, taking the time to think and to gather your your thoughts and to just go out and live for a little bit and get refreshed and then go back to the page. I love that. In a way, it's about finding balance between the two things. Yes, I will now take that to heart, that taking a step back is writing. I think that is key right there. I think that's a good way to rewire your brain when you do take those breaks without feeling guilt or without feeling like you're not doing your part or whatever. No, that's really helpful. And one of the reasons why this episode is so interesting as well is because The White Ribbon being a Michael Haneke film is a film that very much undermines or defies many of the structural conventions that we're used to in the United States. It, it's definitely not a hero's journey story, and it's a film that really investigates some very dark things that went on in early modern Europe in, in the lead up to the First World War and what life was like in, in small villages. And so I do recommend it. If it's a film that you haven't seen, it's a film that it's time to get around to watching because it's, it's one of the most powerful films made in the 21st century. It won the Palme d'Or, I believe, in 2009. Uh, following that one, we did our mega episode on the Oscars in advance Ooh. of the yeah. Academy Awards. We spent the full length of an episode discussing all of the different nominees and deciding which one we thought deserved to win in each category. I think in the end, we both agreed that Parasite was overall a very worthy winner of the best original screenplay category. And I think for the adapted screenplay category, we had slightly different picks and I preferred uh, The Two Popes which I thought was a very brilliant screenplay. And I think you went for Jojo Rabbit I think so for that too. one, which is yeah. the eventual winner as well. And again, is one of those ones kind of like the boy in the striped pajamas. I was that just thinking that. Is not historically accurate, but it certainly creates a sensation that I think aids people's historical understanding and gets them engaged with the yeah. subject matter at hand. And it kind of engages the general audience, not just adults. I think I think a 10-year-old boy can watch Jojo Rabbit. Knowing that this year the Oscars might be different, uh, hopefully we'll be doing an episode next year as well. I hope so. On the Academy Awards. Yeah. But it was very fun. It was your challenge to me, essentially, you said. 
Let's read all of the nominees. <laughs> I don't know what I was them. thinking. Yes. <laughs> it's not the same as watching 10 films. No, it's not. Even though <laughs> watching 10 films, when you think about it, is, is a lot to do as well. Yeah. But reading 10 screenplays and watching 10 films, mm-hmm. it, it is a lot. It was very interesting. You know, a snapshot of the best of the year, or at least what? You know, the Academy was calling the best of the year because the Lighthouse absolutely should have been included on that list. Oh, for sure. But it was still very interesting to see a snapshot and put ourselves in the position of judging a category of thinking, well, if all of these nominees were up to me, which one would I I pick? Yeah, I think the scripts that they picked were really good. Two Popes was also up there for me as well. Wait, was the Lighthouse at all nominated for script? No. Not at all. Never mind. <laughs> I think it got I think it got completely snubbed except for cinematography. Oh, that makes sense. I knew it was nominated for something. Like at least one thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh well that's the thing about also I think the thing about the Academy Awards to keep in mind as well is that studios tend to release what they feel has a good shot at getting a nomination by releasing it towards the end of the year. So most of the films that end up getting nominated, they come out in December, November, December. That's usually the award season. The danger with that is that, you know, you how sometimes you watch a film and you have a certain opinion, but then as time goes by, your, your opinion changes. I feel like it's such a small gap of time between watching all these films and then deciding which one was the best, you know what I mean? Without letting it kind of simmer a little bit. Um, Yeah. Many times we've seen these wins, especially in the best picture category mm -hmm. that on reflection did not deserve it. Yeah. And and nominations as well. Like we were saying, like the lighthouse, you know, completely snubbed. Um, So it's, you know, it's a, I take it with a grain of salt, but nonetheless, I did enjoy, I think it was a good batch this year. I think they were all really good scripts from what I remember and very different from each other. I think that was also a really cool thing about doing that episode was like reading a different kind of script every day and just seeing the different ways of telling a story. So I, I I really did appreciate that experience for that. Yeah, so I wouldn't do it every time, but for a one-off, it was very fun. It was it was a great challenge. And then after the Oscars, I traveled to Belfast, which is a city I really enjoy. It's the second time that I visited that city. And I reached out to Glenn Patterson, who is a... He's primarily a novelist, actually, but he has one screenplay which was made into a film. He wrote it with a co-writer of his called Colin Carberry. I just spoke to Glenn about his work and it's called Good Vibrations and it's about a man named Terry Hooley who during the troubles when all of Belfast was becoming completely divided politically, it was completely partisan between two groups, Protestants and the Catholics is the traditional way of dividing them. But of course, this this cut up neighborhoods, it cut up entire areas of the city into no-go zones for, for different people. It became very, very dangerous. The city center in particular was a place where there were regular bombings and terrorist activity going on. And this is a place he grew up in. Glenn Patterson grew up in this. And Terry Hooley was a figure in that community who was very well known because he owned and opened up a record shop in the middle of the 1970s in Belfast when Anyone who did this would be considered absolutely insane. 
due to how unsafe it was. And there was someone in Belfast who was offering an alternative that was trying to bring people together, and that would be around music and concerts as opposed to finding things to hate each other over or to divide each other further. Uh, Glenn being a novelist, he's he obviously is someone who's thought very deeply about a lot of these subjects. Most of his novels are set in Belfast as well. And in this clip, what I had said to him, and it's always awkward being corrected, I think, in an interview. You feel suddenly like, oh, I've said the wrong thing. But right. in another way, it's the best thing that can happen because you've you set out with a perspective and you think this is the way it works. And then that person corrects you and offers you an alternative way of seeing it. It's actually a really, really wonderful thing when that happens. And so I had said to Glenn that Good Vibrations reminded me of Derry Girls, which is a very popular show on Channel 4 in the UK at the moment, and it's on Netflix in the United States. And it's about these young girls growing up and going to Catholic school in Northern Ireland and kind of seeing all of this stuff going on around them. And I said, Good Vibrations, like Derry Girls, has all of the politics in the background. It's not the main focus. And this is where Glenn corrects me. I mean, I, I would possibly disagree on it just being backdrop because it's not backdrop, it's backdrop and it's all it's all around. It's three-dimensional, mm-hmm. um, the, the troubles. And yet, as I always said, and I think about this with my, with my fiction, I grew up through this time. No matter what's going on out there in the world, this is your year to be 17. You have to do the things that you're going to do when you're 17 and you're going to have to do them in Belfast. So it doesn't matter if there are roadblocks. It doesn't matter if there are bomb scares. It doesn't matter if there are shootings at night. This is your time, and this is you're going to do it now. And I think it's it's that kind of elemental life force, that choosing who you will be, and that defiance, absolute defiance. It's not apolitical. It is supremely political. It just refuses all the terms that other people would try to pin on you. And I think that's um, that's that's for me what what good vibrations really is one of the great messages of it. Early on in the film, there's a, a moment where Terry's trying to put on a gig in town, early 1970s. Some of the people who he used to know in the peace movement, anti-Vietnam War movement, are now aligned with paramilitary organisations. One of them looks at the poster and says um putting a gig on down there have you a death wish and he says no i have a life wish it's a celebration of that Mm. i do love the accent yeah (laughs) yeah belfast has one of the best (laughs) accents in in the uk and ireland i i love that it's using music as a unifying tool within the story and and, in a way as he said as a way of being political without being overtly political i suppose yeah one of the things that really stands out to me from that from that statement as well is that i think now we are all in a very uncertain situation and again it's about saying well we don't know how long this is going to last but this is still the the one year of your life that you are going to be Mm. this age and what are you going to do with that year if you look at it in those terms Mm. It can be very encouraging. At times it can seem limiting. It's, oh my God, all of my my freedom, all of my ability to live my life the way I used to live it has been taken away. But you still have to remember, well, let's say you are 17 right now. This is still the year you were 17. 
and what are you going to do with that year? I think I think that's brilliant advice. And that's from someone who's experienced a complete collapse of things functioning as normal and living through some very, very difficult times. Following that one, that I traveled back to the United yeah. States and we had our... I was releasing these episodes while we settled back in. And then we both headed up to LA to go and record our episode with David Rabinowitz. Mm-hmm. David Rabinowitz, uh, one of the four... Uh, people responsible for writing the script of Black Klansman, which ended up winning the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. And it was such a treat to able to talk to him. And uh, I think for anyone that goes back and listens, he's you can tell he's a very focused writer. And what was very fascinating to me was the way the film got made, the way that he got his script out there because this is the first time that we were actually interviewing someone that has gone through that process where you know you actually do get that deal you actually do get that filmmaker to make your film you actually see your film being released and not only being released but being celebrated by audiences and by critics so he went through that whole entire journey so it was really interesting to hear his perspective and to hear the collaboration that he had with his co-writer and then once Spike and his uh, partner came on board and they all kind of worked together. One of my favorite parts was discovering which parts were Spike's influences and which ones were kind of his. And one of the pieces of advice that I really took to heart was, um, you know, he had to kind of like do some mental gymnastics to be open to outside influences coming and participating in the telling of the story because you know at, at a certain point it does become collaborative and you have to be open to ideas and not get so stuck on yours i think that's very 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 important to keep in mind for any screenwriter yeah it was a brilliant episode for us to do i i think it was really fun to be able to also find out the processes that were going on in the background obviously david was able to give us a lot of the history behind the project but also to be able to ask him about the development of the characters and the senses of responsibility that he and his co-writer felt with dealing with people who really existed. Obviously, he was in communication with Ron Stallworth himself, and so he's got lots of great anecdotes that he brings up in that episode talking about his time working with Ron. And so, yeah, I think we got a full overview of everything about Black Klansman, which is one of those films that I think is definitely going down in history as one of the best of that period of time that year in particular it's a great film and i think it's getting better with age and because it, it, it took place at a very critical moment in the history of the united states as well when it was released so i think it's one that we're going to look back fondly on uh, for for a long time now then we got back to a few more regular discussion episodes after this point so Following Black Landsman, we did a tie-in to the release of the next James oh, Bond film, which obviously R.I.P. did not get released. I think the day we recorded was actually the day they made the announcement. This was prior to any lockdowns happening in California. Oh, that's right. And Eon Films, obviously the producers of the James Bond franchise. No Time yeah. to Die, issued that statement that the film was going to be delayed until autumn. 
So we had recorded our episode anyway, but it was still great to yeah. look at because I think Casino Royale was always going to be worth looking at. It was a reboot of the James Bond franchise. It was going back to the first book that Ian Fleming had written. So we both read the book and then compared that to the film. And obviously the film is set in 2006 and the book was written in the 1950s so there's so much of the evolution of the james bond character to discuss over the course of that episode and also how you go about taking the best plot points from a book and also how you adapt material that is very out of date especially in terms of our perception of a character like james bond the the james bond character in that book smokes 70 cigarettes a day and that's no longer considered heroic in our day and age, and especially not his attitude towards women and the way he talks about the female character in the film Vesper. There's been a big cultural shift since the 1950s. We sometimes see action films as less sophisticated, but when you compare Casino Royale to the films that were being made prior to that, the, the last of the Pierce Brosnan era Bond films, and then you read Casino Royale, you see how much care and attention is, has gone into making that a really solid and impactful screenplay. Yeah, um, the, the biggest uh, miracle coming from that is that they were able to take a character that has been around for so many years and give it a whole new fresh take. And that's pretty miraculous if you think about it. You know, I think this was the first time I ever cared about um, James Bond in a it felt like we went one step further into his inner world and actually get to know him a bit. It became less about what the plot was and it became more about what was happening with him. And I thought that was uh, revolutionary for that character. And it's exciting to see the evolution of the different kinds of stories that, that are being told. Uh, so the next episode was another one I released with a separate interview that was with Andrew Graves, who is a poet and writer from Nottingham. He wrote a book called Welcome to the Cheap Seats, which is about British working class cinema. Mm. And so he was someone I wanted to reach out to and talk to about Ken Loach's film, Looking for Eric, which is a film that I do think a British audience will respond more positively to it. I don't know how well it translates beyond the frontiers of, of Britain, but it's a very interesting film. It's about a man who, he's a postman and he's going through depression. Uh, he's divorced. He's raising these two stepsons by himself and really struggling in his life. He's always been a big football fan. He's a Manchester United supporter. And in his moment of need, Eric Cantona comes to life and starts to spend time with him and coaches him through his problems and helps him find his will to live and his ability to deal with all of the responsibilities and difficulties of life. So it's a, it's a very interesting film. It's, it's kind of like magical realism. Everything happens in the real world and it discusses very real social issues, but it has this one thing, one thing that is completely impossible which is the fact that Eric Cantona is somehow coming to life and spending time in his bedroom. And so the clip I'm going to play to you is from our discussion about the screenplay. And one of the things that I learned from that screenplay, it was written by Paul Laverty and obviously intended to be directed by Ken Loach. And the way that Paul Laverty writes his screenplays, in the dialogue sections, he doesn't write 
the dialogue out exactly as it's meant to be spoken. And he uses ellipses, three dots, and he just puts in key phrases. And that's almost like an invitation to the actors to say, well, how would you say this? So he just puts down the key points of information with these dots, spacing it out. And then the actor is able to reinterpret and say the whole phrase in the way that works best for them. And it allows the actor to bring in their local culture, the flavor of their local accent, the way that they, the kind of vocabulary they would use. And so this clip is going to just show a little bit of Andrew's thoughts on that. I mean, the thing is, um, Paul Laverty had been working with Ken Loach since 1996 when he did Carla's song. So he would be well versed in how Ken Loach works as a filmmaker in that he you know, sets up these scenes and really let lets the actors go and, and will keep filming until, you know, he'll let the scene play out however it's going to go, regardless of what's on, on the page. So what strikes you about Paul Laverty's screenplay is it is ha- how polite it is in some way. You know, there, it, it is very mm-hmm. much, you know, like you said, there are these moments in the screenplay where it is almost perhaps... Meatballs does this, or you know, perhaps Spleen says this. Like you say, it is a suggestion. Whereas, completely polar opposite. If you read a Tarantino script, there's nothing polite about that. It's very much this is definitely what's happening, kids. You know, this is it. This is it, cats. You know, this is where we're going with this. Mm-hmm. In comparison, it's a very polite. Which is, I don't mean it's not confident in its storytelling and its narrative, but in terms of allowing because he knows that Ken Loach will do that anyway once he's on set there's mm. lots of room in this script to let the actors do their thing that's fascinating i think that's a, a very rare take in screenwriting at the heart of it film is a collaborative right. medium you know, again with many of our episodes what you learn from the screenplay isn't necessarily apparent until you start talking mm-hmm. about it But that was the thing that I really took away from it, was that actually, at their very heart and soul, screenplays are a suggestion. Yeah. With all of my knowledge and understanding of the inner workings of this story and all of the characters, this is what they should say at this moment. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. And I think, I don't think there's one right way to do it. You know, I don't think Tarantino's wrong for wanting to do it his way and vice versa but it's it definitely allows for more spontaneity it allows for more uh, inspiration because you get a lot of unexpected content out of that i would imagine and from that you know new ideas can be birthed so it, it feels like it's a much more of intensive way of telling a story of shooting a story because you know i kind of see filming as you know the script is the battle plan and then the filming is the actual battle you know what I mean? So there's, but I feel like with this, it's like you're going in with a vague plan and then you're going to go on an adventure and see what happens. So it feels a little bit more dangerous, but I think that's probably what's so appealing about that because you, yeah, you're open to new, new possibilities. Okay. So the next screenplay we looked at was the Royal Tenenbaums, which I think goes back into a more structured vision of a, a particular director who's setting out with one particular vision for something entirely in his mind but even then you know the royal tenenbaums is a collaborative project it was written with owen wilson and wes anderson 
let's let's hear your thoughts on the royal well royal tenenbaums is a one of my favorite comedies and it's definitely very uniquely wes anderson he's one of those directors where all his films have a very distinct look that's very much him and a distinct rhythm i think this is a script where it it has a very specific language with the characters that's not in our world of reality it's slightly off reality but it's not in the realm of fantasy either it's kind of in between those two things where there's a lot of sort of heavy stuff happening in the film but it never feels heavy it's always um, told through humor dark humor um, and these very long pauses that Wes Anderson really loves to do and I think maybe in those pauses, it's almost like he's inviting the audience to kind of fill in those gaps as well. And it kind of gives the the film a different sort of life. It doesn't feel like a three-act structure necessarily. It just It's a script that's very hard to dissect and to kind of compartmentalize because it's so uniquely him, I guess. I personally felt that... I struggled with that recording because the screenplay itself is very complicated. I think some of the stuff that I brought into that episode that went well were comparisons to the influences that Wes Anderson was taking, discussing films like Le Faux Follet and The Magnificent Ambersons, the, the kind of cinematic heritage of Orson Welles and French New Wave that Wes Anderson was was drawing on, that kind of stuff I was able to articulate. And in terms of breaking down the screenplay and how it actually functions, I think we did a very valiant attempt at it, but it was it was one of the toughest episodes I think we've had to record. It's it's a very complicated screenplay. Yeah, but but now that we're talking about it, I, I, I think one thing that is so appealing about it is the characters. You know, I think... Yeah, it may be quirky and it may not be for everybody. It's definitely an acquired taste. But at the root of it, it's all about these characters. And I think the best part of the film is how memorable they are and the uniqueness that every character brings. And I like how they're kind of cartoon characters. Like they never really change clothes. You know, they're kind of like a parody of themselves almost. And that just adds to the charm. I mean, it's not for everybody and I totally get it. But I, it's, it's definitely for me. I, I really do love his, his storytelling. The next episode I released was Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, which was a collaboration with Everett Rummage from the Agent Napoleon podcast. And Everett knows so much about everything to do with the Napoleonic era. It was great to talk to Everett about all of these aspects because Master and Commander is a very rare script in a way because... It was written by John Colley, who is a uh, Scottish screenwriter who actually started out his career as a doctor, a medical doctor, and then went into writing. And he's a very articulate man. He's very, very intelligent. And the whole screenplay is written in early 19th century English, which is very rare. Most historical screenplays that we've looked at are very firmly in modern English, and all of the action lines are in So the action English. lines as well? It's mainly vocabulary. The, the whole screenplay is filled with a variety of vocabulary with regards to the, the actual vessel they're on, the sails, the ropes, the knots, everything, the, the, the weather. 
so it was a really really cool screenplay to take a look at and in this this is going to be the last clip this is just everett telling us a little bit about obviously when you're adapting a screenplay or you're setting a screenplay in a real historical time period you're often accused of exaggerating events of dramatizing things a bit too much and in this clip everett argues that actually master and commander because that era was so crazy that actually master and commander is if anything it's been toned down so that an audience might believe it because what really went on during that time period was so crazy so basically they are you know they're they're kids they're learning and they're also commanding men in battle sometimes, as we saw. Uh, it's a very strange convention, but that is how they trained naval officers until relatively recently. There were teenage boys on British vessels during World War I. So that's not a, by any means an, an old practice. And it was a really difficult life. A lot of them washed out. A lot of them never made it. You needed a little influence sometimes to get through that exam. You know, it helped when Nelson took it. His uncle was one of the supervisors. So that helps. Yeah, exactly. And so if you, if you didn't know what you were doing and you didn't have a, someone to watch your back, you probably wouldn't make it. But that process, I mean, that, that generation, they created a lot of, you read about the things these people did and it seems like it should be impossible. You know, the movie really does not, if anything, the movie doesn't depict some of the wilder things you get. I mean, you know, there's, Stories of guys, you know, sailing a burning ship into an enemy fleet and then jumping off and swimming back to their own fleet. Master and Commander, in a certain sense, is more understated than real life. Because in real life, there were sometimes these spectacular, crazy things that read like fiction. And it was this, this really difficult trial by fire, starting at like age 10 or 11, that produced people who were capable of doing these things. Yeah, I highly recommend anyone who enjoyed uh, that film to go and listen to the episode because it's great to be able to talk to someone who's an expert on that period of history. It It's one of those films that I think almost got a little bit lost in the shuffle. But when you consider those first early years of the 2000s where Russell Crowe was in Gladiator, then A Beautiful Mind, then Master and Commander, I mean, those were his glory his years. Pictures. I mean, all of those films are fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's I love that movie. I it's one of my favorites, and I loved it the like the minute I saw it. Like uh, I saw it twice in the cinema, and what I really took from that film was it just made me feel good. I love spending time with those characters. I love spending time on that ship. I I, I really enjoyed the friendship between Paul Benny's character and Russell Crowe's character. It felt very authentic in the production design and. All of that felt very authentic, the way they were speaking. Anyways, at the center, what I really enjoyed was was the characters on board the ship. Yeah, it's such a shame that it never became a franchise because clearly it was set out to be a franchise and it just didn't really get the response that they needed. And obviously, Pirates of the Caribbean won out. Yeah, we're like eventually. a number eight you know, or that, something. That kind of filmmaking wins yeah. out, but... I think Master and Commander has many, many more admirable qualities beginning with the screenplay in the first place. So yeah, I highly recommend that episode to anyone cool. who wants to revisit that moment because it's a great it's a great story. So we've done three more films. 
Black Swan was next. Yes. Do you want to tell us about Black, Black Swan? Swan um, screenplay by there's three screenwriters: Mark Heyman, Andres Hines, and John McLaughlin, and directed by Darren Aronofsky, of course. And Black Swan, yeah, this is a psychological thriller that is very much uh, centered around the character of Nina, a uh, a very uptight ballerina who is ambitious and wants to get that lead role. And it's pretty much the unraveling of her mind as she just gets more and more desperate and paranoid. I think paranoia is a big theme in the film. I really do feel like Nina is one of my all-time favorite characters in film because by the end of that movie, I just feel like I, I, I know her so well because we're seeing inside her mind and not just inside her mind, but how her mind is just consuming her and, and, and just sabotaging her. You know, I think it's very much about mental illness as well. You know, it's, it's, she's making all these terrible uh, mistakes, but you never judge her for it. You understand a hundred percent why she's making the choices that she's making. You can see how it, how that can drive anyone insane, that world you know, um, which could easily be any competitive world, which is what makes that film universal. It could have been talking about actors. It could have been talking about some other cutthroat career. Um, so I think that universality, I think, is makes the film extremely accessible. What I really appreciated about that script and the film was these very subtle moments that reveal to you, the audience and the reader, these little clues as to how she is kind of losing it. And why she's losing it, which I found really fascinating. You know, she's always in this space of wondering what the other person is thinking of her. And that is visually manifested in that she's always constantly seeing herself through mirrors. She's always seeing herself from an external perspective. That's why she's an easy victim for her mind, because she's not owning who she is. She's not seeing herself at all. She's just seeing some perception outside herself. All of those qualities, I feel, are present in most people. And I think for me, watching that film is a bit like therapy for me because it serves as a cautionary tale. You know, I think it's a cautionary tale at the end because you can see where that fine line is and you can see why she's making those mistakes. And I know it's just a film, but for me, I take some of that and I'm like, okay, I got to remember to not do that. I connected to it on that level as well. Another thing I enjoyed about Black Swan is that because it's an original screenplay, we were able to go back and look at earlier versions and see, because it was a story that was developed over 10 years, just seeing it, the different crossroads at which uh, a decision has to be made. Do we go down this route or this route? And essentially how you build up a character along those lines, how you make the drama more compelling how they lent into some of the more realistic aspects of the screenplay and stepped away from some of the more surreal stuff while keeping it as essentially just part of the tone of the film was to keep it quite surreal, but not specifically writing in too many things that were just bizarre and unsettling. And And the result of that is that it, it really grips you because it you never really know where you stand in a film like that. You never know if you can trust what you're seeing or if if the the film is playing tricks right. on you and that makes it for a, a very compelling um viewing experience yes. 
After that, we have Children of Men, one of my favorite films that we've done so far. Of all of our discussion episodes from this round, I do think that one of our best recordings was Children of Men. I think we were both very, very passionate about the, yeah. the film and the I story. Think them, and that I think that helps. makes a difference because this is probably the, the first episode where I've actually gotten feedback from people. I know some of my friends are listening, but I've never gotten an actual like detailed feedback on an episode. And you're right. I, obviously, this was one of our best ones because that happened. I was really happy to hear that. Children of Men, it's an adapted screenplay from a book. And I think what's so unique about it is that it is so different from the book. And it was meant to be very different from the book because Alfonso Cuaron read a page summary of the of the book and from that he just developed his own idea of what the film should be and never read the book and that's a very risky move i feel um but i think it paid off because he was so true to his own vision of what that was that it the film has such a conviction and the film ends up being very similar in spirit to the book but in different ways uh, manifested through different variations but i think they did such a good job with setting up a world that feels so realistic even though it's in the future but it feels like it could be now you know one of the things that we discussed extensively over that episode was the differences and the qualities brought from the book into the screenplay and i do think they are just so different from each other but that that is what works the that kind of adaptation when you are taking significant inspiration from another writer's work but also reinventing it entirely for the needs of what you have to say because Alfonso Cuaron went into that film I think with a lot to say and that is one of the most apparent things about reading the screenplay which he had done with a bunch of other writers many hands involved in that project but ultimately the story that is shaped out of it is one that i think transformed the story the the main power of the book is that it gets you thinking about all of the implications of the setting that's being created but what the screenplay did is created a protagonist that any audience member can project themselves mm. into created an everyman right. protagonist that it's very, very easy to sympathize with, to understand his motivation, and then be taken, swept along on that roller coaster journey in the way that good films do. That there's no point in Children of Men where you want to check, check your messages right. or something. You know, you're not looking away yeah. from the screen. It grips you and it keeps attention up all the way through, which we did discover in the book, in the second half of the book, that is the tone mm. that is taken on that P.D. James beautifully really sweeps the rug up from under you because you're used to a certain pace in the first half right. of the book. And then when everything starts to transform into the story that we're kind of familiar with from the film, let's say, that speed, the, the sense of danger that's constantly running throughout it, it all comes yep. from that second part yep. of the book. And it was brilliantly done because it set it up so well in the first half. We already knew what the stakes were. And so it was just run and go. And kind of circling back to an earlier point that we were talking about, about action films being perceived as having less sophistication. This is a prime example. It's 
pretty much an action film in a way because there's constant action. There's It's a chase film for sure, but it doesn't quite feel that way. It would cheapen it to say it's just those things, you know? So this is an example of how to use action as a way of revealing story, revealing character, and not just having action for the sake of entertaining an audience, but rather using it to empower your story. Yes, beautiful film. And finally, episode 20 of this cycle is Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, This was the first one that we put to a vote. We asked for our audience to pick which screenplay we would look at on the episode, and Three Billboards won out narrowly over Gangs of New York, which is still one that I would like to take on at some point in the future. But Three Billboards, that was really fun to revisit. I really, really enjoyed it the first time I saw it, and... Going into the screenplay, there's a bunch of different scenes which didn't make it into the film that gives us a lot more background on the characters. But essentially, it's a very, very strong, very well-structured story all the way throughout. really challenges you. It does so without being melodramatic, without being too exaggerated or anything like that. But sometimes it just punches you right in the chest, that film. And uh, I really enjoyed going back into that world and uh, figuring out how those characters were developed and what was done, because I I really love midpoints. I love looking at screenplays and looking at where the midpoint is and seeing how that changes everything. And Three Billboards, I think, has the best midpoint. If there was an award for best (laughs) midpoint, Three Billboards would win that one. Because you just don't see it coming. You don't see this huge event that's, that takes place right in the middle of the film and completely changes everything. You don't see it coming. And yet it, it neatly divides the film into two halves, the before and the after. And I think that was a really great thing to look at in terms of learning the power of a midpoint and all the things you can do in the build-up to that to kind of distract and to make that that moment more powerful. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think uh, it's talk about fresh air. I think this film felt like that. And kind of another point we are making earlier um, that we haven't really talked about it too much in our episodes, but the idea of being in the audience's shoes and knowing how to subvert expectations. I think this is a, another good example of that in which... You know, we maybe thought the film was going a certain way and then he just switches it all together. But it doesn't feel like he's betraying anything. It feels like it just makes sense with what the characters are going through and their circumstances and who they are as people. Yes, it's shocking, but it makes sense and it doesn't feel like it's just there to, you know, try something new. And I think that's a very tricky thing to do, too. You know, I don't think anyone can just pull that off. I think M. Night Shyamalan's plot twist, you know, it's an, it's the first thing I can think of. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. The times that it does work, I feel it's got to do with honoring the story that came before it and not trying to just cheapen a trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's careful setup, but it should always feel right. authentic. Right, right. To the characters and the the world you've created. Yeah, I always, I always, I always tell myself, you know, there's only two reactions that you can expect from a plot twist. The only two possible outcomes. One would be like, oh my god, come on, really? Or oh my god, whoa, did you what? You know, there's 
you, mm-hmm. there's only two ways you can go about it, um, which is a big risk. But um, yeah, this film totally uh, earns that, and not only earns it, but like it just like you said, takes the story in a different direction. And what I love about the film is all the humor that it has, and not for the sake of telling jokes, but through the humor, we're able to kind of understand these characters a little bit more and understand the ridiculousness of some of these situations and i think it it, it's a very unique voice that he has because it comes at very unexpected times the humor and it's just like you said it never feels melodramatic it never feels too heavy it's it's definitely uh worth the read for sure okay well that's our recap let's talk about the awards Okay, so we just took a short break, but now we're back and we're going to get on to the regular awards category that we give out at the end of every 21st recap. Yes. Looking back at all of the screenplays that we've analyzed this time round and deciding which one we think is the best in each category. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing we had a lot of fun with last time was the Missed Opportunity Award, which basically is just open to interpretation exactly what that would mean. But the way I think of it is essentially if the screenplay is based on a book, you could say that the adaptation was not quite good enough. It didn't entirely capture everything that the book was about, and therefore that was a missed opportunity. Or also maybe it could be a screenplay that was really well written and didn't turn into the best film. Mm. And so last time we had picked Never Let Me Go for that one, which we felt the book was just far superior and the film didn't entirely translate everything that was brilliant about the book. Right. And uh, this year, it's a little bit tougher. I think we're getting really good at this because all the scripts that we picked are just really, really great. And uh, it was really tough having to narrow down some choices but uh, that being said, we can talk through some of these. And I'm very curious to hear your choices. For some of these categories, I think you will probably lean more strongly towards screenplays that you were analyzing on one of the episodes yourself. But they're all up in contention if there's any from the other episodes you want to throw in there as well. I think the two I'm kind of stuck between on the missed opportunity are either Crash or The Hobbit. Crash... I think it was a big missed opportunity. It's something I was talking about with Epicy on the episode, is that we felt that Crash was originally designed to be a TV series, and it got made as a film. It's a film that was shot in about 36 days, so very, very short shooting window, trying to convey all of the different ideas, trying to convey everything that Crash was about in just a two-hour film. Potentially, that could be the biggest missed opportunity in a way. But then again, it still won the Academy Award for Best Picture. So you can hardly call that a missed opportunity in in another sense. Well, that's true. Certainly people didn't think so because they gave it that big prize. I I have it narrowed down to those two as well. Even though I was not part of those episodes, I just couldn't find any from the ones that I have reviewed to put in this category. Even though I do think that the first Hobbit film, The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey, started out really strong and took a lot of care to really capture the essence of the book, 
pretty much after the scene where Bilbo reclaims the ring from Gollum, I feel that the story starts to go a little bit downhill. It falls into that major pitfall, which we talked about on the episode, where essentially they're trying to make so much out of a single very short book that's only 200 pages long and trying to stretch that out over the three films. And I do feel that a more faithful adaptation of The Hobbit would have gone down better than this hybrid that is trying to include much more of the tone of Lord of the Rings, but then substitutes in a lot of this CGI orc storyline and and things like that that just didn't entirely work for me. So I would put forward The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey as the biggest missed opportunity out of all of the screenplays that we looked at. Yes, I would I would have to agree with you. I was torn between Crash and The Hobbit. So I'm going to go with The Hobbit because with Crash, the story that they tackled and the themes that they were trying to tackle, this racial tension, I feel like we've gotten so many better films since then that deals with these issues. So in a way, you know, that opportunity to tell that story, you know, other directors and other writers have taken it and made better films. But with The Hobbit, that's a once in a lifetime deal there. You know, I mean, of course they can remake it down the line, but this was Peter Jackson. This was his whole team from Lord of the Rings. So, you know, it would have had that that same connection. I, I feel that with The Hobbit, one film would have been really, really cool if it would have been like a three hour film as a sort of companion piece to The Lord of the Rings, I think would have felt more appropriate. I, th- I think everyone would have appreciated it a little bit more because um, it was self-contained. And like you said, it didn't feel like they were really stretching all these things. And for people who read the book, like myself, I feel like everything that they added didn't really add anything to the feeling that you get from reading the book. If anything, it kind of takes from it. All these other storylines that they added in just felt like it was just robbing screen time from what the films should really be about which is Bilbo Baggins why are we dealing with all these crazy larger problems in this Middle Earth and in a way it kind of takes away from Lord of the Rings the original trilogy because it feels like the stakes are higher for this film in a way it should have felt more like a prelude to something bigger exactly Tolkien's intention with The Hobbit was to write a children's book And then out Mm -hmm. of that book, he started to realize that the place he was writing about in that book was Middle-earth. And then he expanded that universe out into The Lord of the Rings, The Cimmerillion, and all of the other tales that he told about Middle-earth. So, yes, I, I personally, The Hobbit was one of my favorite books when I was a child. For me, the film didn't entirely capture the spirit of that book, and I think that is a missed opportunity, especially, as you said, considering Peter Jackson's prominence in the film industry and the cultural significance of the Lord of the Rings trilogy that he created. I think it's going to be many, many decades before anyone will get a chance to take another stab at adapting The Hobbit. So... Again, yeah. it's it's setting back that time frame in the same way that you might look back at, you know, the the nineteen forties version of Beauty and the Beast and then Disney mm-hmm. finally getting around to remaking that film many, many decades later. 
it's something like that right. in in my opinion i think it will be a long time before anyone can try and take on the hobbit again yeah yeah definitely so there you go missed yeah. opportunity and that's not to say it's a terrible screenplay and I, it's honestly not i i really do appreciate the inclusion of the songs that was one of the things that i really loved it did capture some of the tone from the book but i think what you said is perfectly accurate it's the fact that this is a story that is very much about bilbo baggins and by trying to make it into an epic saga like lord of the rings it lost its focus yeah, but you're right. It is an entertaining film. I don't think it's a horrible film, but yeah, it could have been something more. Okay, so coming up next is best writing style. This is always a fun category to judge because I think it's something that we don't talk about very much. We talk about cinematography and I mean, in the public discourse, we talk about how a film is shot and the way that it's directed and edited but very few people actually go and read the screenplays and therefore have a sense of the writing style of many of the people who are involved from the very beginning, conceptualizing, developing the story, coming up with all the character traits and the dialogue. So best writing style, I think, is it's a category to look at as screenwriters, as readers. We are looking at who we think has the best distinct style. Now, last time you picked... Aaron Sorkin for Steve Jobs, and I picked Kenneth Lonergan for Manchester by the Sea. So I think, again, we might pick something different from each other in, in this round. But again, I think it's whatever whatever connects most with us as individuals, as opposed to there being any objective best style. This time around, a lot of the screenplays we've looked at have had multiple writers as well. So In terms of Mm -hmm. best writing style, I think it's easier for us to focus on individual writers who are showing their distinct style. So Mm -hmm. nominated for this are Martin McDonough for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, John Colley for Master and Commander, Robert and Max Eggers for The Lighthouse, Wes Anderson for The Royal Tenenbaums, Sophia Coppola for Lost in Translation, and Anthony McCartan for The Two Popes. Yeah, um, I was going to pick Wes Anderson because I think he has a very unique style. But at the last moment, I decided to go with Martin Madonna for uh, Three Billboards because I felt this time that I read his script, his voice just really spoke through the words. It was just a very specific way of writing. You know, I think all his background as a playwright really shines through in this medium and i think that's very tricky i think it's very tricky for someone who's strictly writing stage plays and then make a script i think there's sometimes like this it feels like a stage play but the film and the script never does even though there's a hint of it there's moments of it but it's always in favor of the characters and you know these sort of surprising moments i think the film has a very refreshing feeling to it because it's always unexpected when i first saw it i was everything that was coming at me was very unexpected which kept me engaged it kept me really invested in these characters and he has a really powerful way of revealing characters with very simple moments and very simple pieces of dialogue and again you know the the golden rule show don't tell and i think this film and the script in particular he's got a way of really doing it his own way Uh, through humor, which is often very unexpected. And I love that. So I think I will go with him for this. 
for myself, this is a very hard pick as well. One of the things I do very distinctly remember from when we were preparing for the episode we were going to do on the Oscars was that Anthony McCartan's writing style in The Two Popes really worked for me. It's partly because of the languages. As you know, I'm, I have a linguistic background. I've worked as a translator for many years, so it was very interesting to see The Two Popes, how it was constructed. He would include sections in Latin, in Spanish, in German, and I think it was the attention to detail I really liked in Anthony McCartan's writing, especially as in a similar manner to Three Billboards. He was condensing a lot of the action and a lot of things that are based on real life, but not entirely true to real life, dramatizing it and in a very theatrical way. I really enjoyed his writing style. At the same time, there was something about uh, Master and Commander I really enjoyed, the way it was written very uniquely, I think, for a historical screenplay. It was written with that very specific tone and usage of vocabulary that fit in with the, the setting. So there was a lot of references to parts of the ship, specific activities going on on the boat that are very well described and are hard for me to recount because I don't have the naval terminology myself to to try and describe mm. it. So in a way, it's a little bit of a labyrinth to work through. But as a work of fiction, it stands out. It doesn't seem to be entirely a screenplay. It's also a real engagement with the source material it's based on. And then finally, The Lighthouse, I do think, was just brilliant from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I guess I've got to pick something here. Those are all great ones. I'm going to go overall for The Lighthouse. I think it's hmm. there's something about the mix because The Two Popes has the attention to detail and Master and Commander has the historical accuracy and The Lighthouse has both and then some more. It does so much. It's including mythological concepts. It's including metaphors and symbolism. It's got deception and red herrings. It's got dialogue that's very engaging and moments of complete silence that are also engaging. It sets out with a very strong vision. It creates a picture in your mind of what you're about to to watch as well because it describes very well the environment, the feel of the place, the rain, the lighthouse, all of this stuff. So in my opinion, I'm going to go for Robert and Max Eggers. And like I said, these are these are two writers that I think we're going to be keeping our eye on for a very long time. And it's only a matter of time before they have a big mainstream success. Oh, for sure. I agree with you 100%. Any one of those are, are at the top there. And I was going to mention something. I thought you had chosen two popes because you started talking yeah. about it. But I, so now I had this thought in my head. But one thing I did appreciate about that script was how he took just a, a a movie about two people talking you know essentially you have these two characters that are just getting to know each other and he made that feel so exciting and so fresh and never boring and always engaging and and that's a very tricky thing to do so i i really much love that script too great so last time we did best opening page this is entirely mm-hmm. about something that is very, very tricky, something I struggle with in my writing all the time. How do you hook the reader right from the very first page? Many screenplays do not do this. I think to take one example, Lost in Translation, 
nothing happens in the screenplay until about page four. I don't think anyone even talks until page four of Lost in Translation. So you don't have to do it. I don't think it's necessary. But when it's done well, there's a power to it, I think, having a strong opening page because you feel like something magic is about to happen. There's all this promise right from the very start. I think last time I singled out Steve Jobs as the best example of that, and you picked Watchmen. Both of them have really, really engaging beginnings. And this time round, I think we're looking at Black Swan, the opening sequence which involves Nina's dream of being on stage and performing Swan Lake, the lighthouse, which is the arrival of these two unnamed characters to this distant island with its its sole lighthouse and them unloading off the boat and all the sense of foreboding that comes with that. No Country for Old Men, which opens with this haunting voiceover from the sheriff who was played by Tommy Lee Jones in, in that film. Very evocative, setting the scene, and it describes this barren Texan wilderness. I think it's a very compelling start to a screenplay. Casino Royale, this was a promise of the reboot, essentially. This is a new James Bond and his creation story right from the very first page. Children of Men, which opens with the death of the youngest person on Earth and then this bombing taking place in central London. Crash, which for all its flaws does have a very compelling opening because it starts out with a car crash and Don Cheadle's character. He's kind of disorientated after the car crash and he's talking about in L.A., because no one walks, maybe we all crash into each other because we just want to feel something. And then finally, Parasite, which opens with this very dark, depressing uh, situation for this this family who are living in abject poverty in, in Seoul. So all of them, I think, have very compelling introductions. And Alan, what, what did you decide on for best opening page? I decided on Children of Men. I felt that that opening sequence was brilliant in setting up the world that we're living in because it takes place in the future. So it has to set up the rules of this reality that we're not familiar with. Uh, not only does it introduce the the setting that we're in, it sets up the major issue in the future, which is that women can no longer get pregnant. But uh, apart from that, the youngest person just died. So there's something monumental that has shifted in this world that we're now in- inhabiting. And we're introduced to our main character. And we're introduced to sort of his apathy in that scene. And I thought that was brilliantly done because we see everyone so hooked on the story and glued to the screen. And, and he just kind of doesn't really seem to care, which sets him apart from the crowd. And then the explosion just kind of raises the stakes. It informs us, the audience, that this is a very dangerous future. I will pick Children of Men. I'm actually going to agree with you on this. I'm going to go for Children of Men as well. I think for all the reasons you've just mentioned, one of the things that really stood out to me when I was reading it and something we talked about on that episode is how Theo, the main character, he is immediately distinguished from everybody else. And that's a very difficult thing to do. I think a screenplay usually takes a little bit of time to ramp up who their main character is and define him to the audience. It's so effective. It tells you everything about the world. It tells you what the stakes are. 
it tells you what to expect in terms of the tone of the film and it tells you about the main character all in one go. Very, very hard to do. And when you compare that to the book, for example, the book has a very, very slow start. It does also have the death of the youngest person at the very start of the book, but it's not compelling in the same way. So you can really see how all of the different people involved in adapting that screenplay really knew how to get right to the heart to suck out the, the message and the significance of what Children of Men is all about and put it straight into the page. And that's really what great screenwriting is all about, is essentially getting across the information in the clearest possible way and to hook the audience. Yeah, and in the book, it's a bit of a slow burn um, to get to the the action pieces. But what Alfonso Cuaron does here is, you know, again, adapting it to a different format for a different kind of audience. And yeah, I, I, I feel even when I watched it the first time, I was instantly loving it from that sequence on. I didn't have that many questions. You know, sometimes when you're watching a science fiction film um, that has very different rules to our world, uh, you're always kind of wondering what is really going on. There's a bunch of questions. But with this, the world becomes very clear very quickly. And I think that's an asset because then you're focused on the emotional part of the story and you're not wondering about the politics or logistics or any of that. It's just informed in a very graceful and efficient manner. Yeah, and I do think that the reason for highlighting this particular concept is because that opening page is critical, I think. You have to remember that a screenplay is going to be a film and that, yes, it's true that films are, they do tend to be shown first in theaters where people have, they've taken their seat, they've sat down. They're going to give you about 10 minutes to really engage them. But if you can, if you can grab them right from the very first second, you're starting out way ahead of most of the competitors. And it's something to really be thinking about in, in our own writing is, how do we write that compelling best opening page? Because that's the first thing a reader's ever going to see. And if it's not great, I do think you get about five or six pages to turn it around. But why not try and get it right from the get-go? Yeah, and actually in a lot of these production offices where scripts are constantly coming in and you have script readers, which... Fun fact, I was one in New York for about eight months where my job was literally just to read all the scripts that were coming into the office. And then I was sort of like the first threshold and I had to read so many, you know what I mean? So that first page is crucial to getting my attention, especially if you're not an established writer and don't have sort of a background or connections. I think, you know, for example, Aaron Sorkin, you're on page seven, you know something's going to come. And But as a brand new writer, I think that's true. It's, why not make it that first page gripping and get that attention? Yeah, and very often gripping doesn't entirely mean, it doesn't necessarily have to have an explosion. Right. It can be something as simple as that opening to The Lighthouse, for example, where you very much get a sense of what's going to happen. It's it's all about the premise. It's all about saying, this mm. is the premise of this story. Now, you can play around with this. One thing that I was noticing yesterday, uh, I watched Brief Encounter last night, a film from 1945. It's based on a 
stage play by Noel Coward, and he adapted it for the screen. And what he does in that is he focuses on two characters who are of no importance, well, not of no importance, but they're not the central characters, and they're having a very mundane conversation. And then he allows the camera to very briefly, this is uh, David Lean who's directing it, he allows the camera to swing across and look at the two main characters sitting in silence. And you can use that to tonally say there's something really significant going on over there because these two people are not talking and you're using distraction early on. But I'd say in most modern modern screenplays, you, you pretty much want to sum up everything that the film is about in some way that, for example, Children of Men, that first page, it sums up, this is about a society that cannot have children. This guy, Theo, stands out because of his apathy, and he, he appears to be very different to everyone else around him who's going along with the status quo, caught up in the news and he's a free thinker he's he's independent enough and he's the person we're going to focus on i think just by doing that on the first page you're basically saying to a reader this is worth continuing this is worth reading and i think you know in my own experience sometimes the first page doesn't come clearly until you really really know your story and then you know what really goes in the front of your story so it's a yeah it's a never evolving process i think Okay, and now we've got to pick the best of the best. This is overall categories. As usual, um, I've looked back at all of the different screenplays that have been analyzed on the 21st rewrite over this series of 20 episodes, and I feel that even though we did this episode on the Oscars, it's not really worth including every single screenplay we looked at there. Instead, what we would do is we would just include the screenplay that we picked specifically as being the best for that category and then put them with all the other ones from the episodes so for best adapted screenplay we would have the hobbit and unexpected journey no country for old men the boy in the striped pajamas good vibrations black Klansman, casino royale master and commander children of men jojo rabbit the two popes now this is obviously a very competitive group with some standout stories in it as well so i don't think if anything is not selected it's not it's not really no um, not at all it's not to say <laughs> any of these are really terrible good. screenplays yeah. these are all these are all yeah. great great stories i mean i do ask myself a little bit about our responsibility in terms of okay well we might be putting casino royale and children of men here up against things like Black Landsman and we personally know David Rabinowitz is it is it fair to are we going to judge these things fairly and I think I think we're capable of doing so I don't think that our decisions are going to be based on the fact that I've met a lot of the people that wrote some of these adapted screenplays here I think that we're able to be quite level-headed about this yeah and I didn't even I (laughs) now that you mention it that's right uh one of our guests was a you wrote one of the scripts. I didn't even think about it, to be honest with you. Um, but I do have a choice. My choice is Children of Men. And I would argue that it's not the most faithful, literal adaptation of a book. So is it fair to give it to Children of Men, which was not as faithful as maybe other screenplays that were to its source material? So there is, which is a valid argument. There are three, but the reason- there are three words in this 
its best adapted screenplay, and I think it's where the emphasis goes. Are we putting the emphasis on the words best and screenplay, or are we putting the emphasis on the word adapted? Right, but it captured its essence, it captured the themes that it was kind of grappling with. The reason why it would be adapted is because the story that the book was telling, the screenwriters were able to transform it into a film and it worked powerfully in that medium. The book is a very powerful piece of literature and I recommend that book. I think it's a great book, but the film is also a great film and it, it, it's like you have the story and it was told in two different mediums and they both did a great job. And I think that's really difficult. You know, I think a lot of um, adapted screenplays tend to either be too faithful or not have enough of what the original story was about. But this one I felt was just an awesome combination of all those things. It, it, it knew what the strengths of filmmaking is and it applied it to the screenplay. So I thought it was uh, uh, brilliantly done. I am very torn. I think mm -hmm. even up until the last second, there are still doubts running through my mind here. Uh, I what feel that Black Klansman is a very, very good adaptation. One of the reasons why I feel that is because in talking about Black Klansman before going to do that interview, someone asked me about the differences between the book and the screenplay. And I said, well, if you've seen the film, you, you really do have a good sense of what the book, what Ron Stolworth's story, as he told it, was all about. And in that sense, if the emphasis falls on the word adapted, I think it's a very, very good adaptation because it really, really conveys this sense of the time period, the things that this guy went through. Even though it's very clearly dramatized, it's still, I think we always have to allow for a lot of that in order to make a compelling screenplay. On the other hand, I, I am hearing your arguments towards why it should be Children of Men, and I do think that as a screenplay overall, it stands out as one of the very best. And then I also have a soft spot for Master and Commander as well, which is an adaptation. It's a very, very complicated adaptation of about... It's taking pieces from about 20 different novels written by this guy, Patrick O'Brien, and condensing all of these different storylines and ideas into this this very unique screenplay that again I think I thought it was very interesting in terms of its writing style but overall I will go with Black Landsman okay for the reasons I've just mentioned I think it's the best adaptation so if I was interpreting those very simple words in the way you are I think I would go with Children of Men but just focusing on adaptation. I think that's a really, really interesting project. I can see entirely why it was snapped up. I think that's something that stood out from the discussions we had with David Rabinowitz about the screenplay as well, is the speed at which this thing gathered interest. And once that ball got rolling, once Jordan Peele got interested in it, it's because it's, it's very high concept and it was an adaptation of something that really happened and yet turned it into a very compelling high concept story idea. The reason why it's the best adaptation for me is because it took this very relatively obscure book 
that almost no one had paid any attention to and turned it into one of the films of the year. And that, in a way, is harder than taking something like Children of Men and allowing the filmmaking team to go wild with the storyline and create their own separate thing. But again, I, I do think that overall, the three I listed are basically all equally great. But just for the sake of picking anyone to <laughs> to name and say is the best one for me, I, I think I'm going to go with Black Klansman. That's a good choice too. I, I think it's a... I think it's a really amazing story and I do love the script and I think uh, what David brought to the project and everything that he talked about was was really, really great. So following this, we've got Best Original Screenplay, which would basically be everything else we looked at aside from the ones we just listed for Adapted. So the Best Originals to pick from, we have Amelie, Lost in Translation, The New World, Crash, Gladiator, the Lighthouse, Parasite, The White Ribbon, Looking for Eric, The Royal Tenenbaums, Black Swan, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Now, last time around, you picked Ruin, which was the uh, screenplay. That was one that we looked at that actually wasn't a film, and it, it's supposedly in development and probably has been affected even more now by the, uh, the uncertainty in the filmmaking industry. Uh, due to the pandemic, but in th- theoretically, Ruin is something that's in development. This time, these all have films that we can compare them to. Ruin is so good that I still remember that script. Like, those images are still in my head. Last time, I picked Ex Machina by Alex Garland, which I think is one of the best screenplays I've ever read. Again, we can think a little bit about where our emphasis is going to fall here is it going to be on the word best or is it going to be on the word original is it because the idea itself is so compelling as a storyline or is it because the execution is so brilliant as well i think the reason i picked ex machina last time was execution and the reason you picked ruin last time was execution as well well i am very torn here um i have uh, Parasite and The Lighthouse as my two finalists. And they're both very different films. The strengths of Parasite was that it was very original in the way the story unfolded. Lighthouse also had a very original concept. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to say The Lighthouse simply because it felt very original. It's setting its characters, the sort of themes it was grappling with, the story overall, the visuals, the motifs, the mythological aspect to it, all of that, all these very different ingredients put into this cauldron and create this, what I feel is a masterpiece. I think uh, I'll go with The Lighthouse. Yes, I feel good about that choice. I I love Parasite as well, uh, but I will go with The Lighthouse. What I really love about this movie is that you can talk endlessly about it with, you know, people you go watch it with. I, I, the thing about um, the filmmakers is that they they haven't necessarily talked too much about what the movie really is about. And you're not given answers to a lot of the things that happen in the film that you as an audience are left wondering, you know, was that real? Did this image symbolize that they're going through like all these different questions 
that you have for the film just kind of keep you in this sort of loop where you're just really talking out um, who these people were. And that's really great. You know, like it's not every film that you come out and the story is still evolving through conversation with you and your friends. And it's, it's that lasting effect that I think is, um, that makes it so special because even now I can watch it again and I'll probably find something that I hadn't picked up before. And I think that's my favorite type of movie that is just infused with so much care and so much detail and so much um, passion for its story. And in every single frame, every single, every single sentence in the screenplay had this sort of attention to detail you knew that these were masters of their craft and they knew exactly the story they wanted to tell they knew how they were going to uh, sort of not puzzle the audience but sort of leave them with these questions and intrigue them with these um, sort of ideas and I, I think that that's why the lighthouse for me is the best original screenplay Again, it's a very difficult decision, and I think it's just a testament to the quality of the screenplays we've been reading and talking about over the course of the year. It's a very difficult one. I have a, I do have a very soft spot for looking for Eric. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is a brilliant screenplay in its own right as well. So is Parasite. Parasite was certainly my favorite when it was just comparing the Oscar nominees. But I think, again, I'm going to have to agree on The Lighthouse. It's, it's one of the best things I've ever read. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so full of just ideas and it gets you thinking. And that's something that I think it's the, the next step. It's one thing to build compelling characters, dramatic tension have interesting and intriguing dialogue and a lot of interesting themes in your screenplay. And then it's a whole other thing to have that screenplay be so interesting that you would go back and reread it to try and unravel the mystery of it, to try and figure out exactly everything that's being talked about. And there's been no end to the number of videos that are circulating online claiming to be able to explain the lighthouse to to really figure it out and i think that in itself to create a story that that creates so much engagement with with the fans is something that is it's going beyond what most people would think the purpose of the screenplay is in the first place for many people it's just laying out the sequence of events but the the lighthouse just has so much depth below i think it's a worthy winner of the Best Original Screenplay Award from the 21st Rewrite and Unanimous this time. Uh, both of us yeah. agree that, that this is the best one. It, it truly is because, you know, in a way, it, it, it gets us talking about ourselves, I think, as people, you know, because you are now dissecting the psychology of a character, but also you're by doing that, you're uh, breaking down the psychology of the human condition. What drives people to madness? You know, what is what does that look like? And all these different emotions and the journey that the character goes through. So I think uh, that's when you're at that mastery level. Is when you leave the theater with all of this. Yeah, I th I think often it's easy, especially as uh, writing is once you. The more you get into writing, the more you're introduced to the industry that surrounds writing. 
this industry that's interested in getting you to buy books on screenwriting or to do master's courses in screenwriting or or try and get you into this place where you're kind of saying, oh, please teach me all of the, the secrets. And what The Lighthouse does, and another of the screenplays that was that was listed here, Amelie as well, I think is another great example of this, is it reveals all of these additional tools that you have at your disposal. Some sort of magic happens when you put down certain words on the page and you say it as if it's a, a statement, as if it's truth, and it creates this thing that it's it's both true and completely impossible at the same time. And that's something that film has always thrived in that medium where it's been able to create things that are completely impossible and bring them into the real world, to, to bring them to life and to make audiences believe. That's always been a part of the magic of cinema. And I think writers like Robert and Max Eggers really take advantage of every tool that's at their disposal. They they look back to the real heritage. They're not just looking at film history heritage and looking, although they do that as well. And as you mentioned, the use of the the camera technology to, to go to harken back to an earlier time period. But they, they look at a heritage that comes from mythology, that comes from Shakespeare, that comes from the greats of drama, and they, they never copy it. They simply reference it to invite the audience into the wider, deeper world of literature that is out there. And I think that's why it's a really, really worthy winner of Best Original Screenplay. Mm, and that's really key right there, what you just said, that it, they didn't copy everything that came before. They Because they knew the story that they wanted to tell, and that was their original, and it was just a fusion and and I think that that it never felt like they were copying anything. It just felt like they were accentuating their story with those tools. You know, it felt it felt appropriate. It felt like it makes sense. Of course, all of this would be involved in the telling of this story. Um, so yeah, that's absolutely what I feel about the screenplay as well. Yeah, there's a misconception that you can that it's enough to simply rewrite a great tale and set it in the modern day. We often hear about this with these adaptations of Shakespeare that are brought into the modern day. Uh, but that's not what The Lighthouse is doing. It, it takes the myth of Prometheus and says, this is a model. This is a... What a lot of Greek mythology is, is models about human behavior that were expressed through the language of mythology. So you can you can go back and utilize that mythology without necessarily having to copy the steps of the myth of Prometheus exactly. You, you tell a completely different story, but reference that depth because it gets into the psychology of everything. It gets into the workings of the human mind, this, this more eternal thing that Yes, culture and and behavior does vary over time, but at the heart of it, there's something unmistakably human going on, especially when it comes to these, these scenarios that have been recurring time and time again. Madness, despair, um, you know, like rage and destruction and all of these things that kind of are built into the lighthouse. Superstition, really, really fun concepts to play around with. Um, I think maybe in our next 20 episodes, a good thing, a good one for us to do might be The Witch, 
And I, I think the reason we do these recap episodes is because someone might find it easier to just listen to the recap episode and see which one stands out so that they know which film they might have missed to go out and watch and then go and listen to our episode on that film. So the biggest takeaway from this recap, I think, is if you haven't seen The Lighthouse, it's time to do so. Give it a try and then go listen to our episode where we try and break down a lot of what's going on underlying the the, the structure of the story. Yeah, and, and watching The Lighthouse and also watching The Witch, I think, should be on the list. I think because in a way they're very different, but at the same time, I feel like they share very similar DNA. I think some of the themes that are present in The Lighthouse are also present in The Witch. And it's interesting to see how differently they manifest because the witch also deals with paranoia and paranoia being sort of the catalyst for this descent into madness because from there on you're questioning what's real, what's not real. And it's really amazing to see how they tackle this in these two stories. I'm very excited for whatever you know they're doing next. And I hope that for the next 20 it's going to be this hard to choose again because I I was even though it was tough to kind of have to pick. Uh, I was really happy I was having a tough time because that just means we're reading really amazing material, which is ultimately going to help us with our own writing as well. Yeah, so that's it for this episode of the twenty first recap. Thank you again, Alan, for for joining me and taking. Thank you. A very long time to get through this episode. I think it's going to be edited My down pleasure. significantly, but uh, we spent a long time discussing this and, and talking through everything. Yeah. <laughs> but it's great to sit yeah. back and reflect. And it's it's such, yeah. you know, obviously the circumstances mean that unusually for us, we are not recording at here where at, at my place and, and sitting in front of each other and talking, but... Yeah. This is the new reality, and it's great that we're actually the technology of mm-hmm. today allows us to keep the podcast going with minimal yeah. interruption. And so we'll be able to bring another 20 episodes quite easily to people, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm really excited for the next batch. Absolutely. Absolutely.